0: Stay hungry, stay foolish. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but
1: because they are hard. I have a dream We'll one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character.
0: What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to Knowledge is Power podcast. I'm your host, Max Willett. And today we got a little bit of a different guest on. I seems like I say that a lot, but I'm just going to say we have another great guest. Uh, if you want to go ahead and introduce yourself, that would be great.
1: Uh, my name is Mark D'Souza. I'm a uh, chief warrant officer with the Rhode Island Army National Guard and uh, former business owner, um, and uh, that's about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that that's pretty simple, but I mean, we're going to go into just like Every other guest, we're going to go into a, a deep conversation about uh, Mark's professional career and um, from, the, uh, from the military, being a pilot to being a restaurant owner and a mechanic. Um, so I sort of just like to start off the conversation to uh, explain your life story, sort of, you know, talk about high school if you want, and then after high school from there. So if you want to go ahead, that'd be great.
1: Yeah, so, uh, well, I grew up in New Bedford. I, I should say I was born in New Bedford, Mass., and we moved to Rhode Island, uh, when I was eight and went through North Kingstown school system, really great school system. North Kingstown High School is phenomenal. We had a ball. Um, I was kind of a partier. Uh, there was like a keg party every weekend, and I was there, if not bringing it. <laughs> so, um, much different from me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a lot, We, we did our, our, um, our group in high school was a lot of fun. We had a lot of friends yep. and really good friends. And um, my uh, it's kind of funny. When I graduated, my little thing that I wrote in the yearbook was from Black Sabbath, Children of the Sea. And it was, we made the mountain shake with laughter as we played, hiding in our corner of the world. And that... To me, that lyric to that me spoke. Me yeah, it spoke <laughs> to North Kingstown in my high school years. We did. We we just played in our corner of the world and we had a ball. Mm-hmm. Um, I played a little too much, and my mom got mad. You know, I mean, I graduated. Took me five years, and she told me that I don't care if you're 25, you're going to graduate school. You know, and and I thank her very much for that. And then, um, you know, I was kind of, like I said I was a partier and I got gotten a little bit of trouble with the police and if you knew my mom and I think you did you've <laughs> um, met her, you've a met few her times, before yeah. um if you knew my mom she literally said to me you're either going to join the military or I'm going to effing bury you in the backyard <laughs> and I looked her in the eye and I knew I know my mom and she wasn't lying. She would have buried me in the backyard, like, and answered for it later. But so I ended up joining the military and I was a cold call. Uh, and what that means is like when a, when a recruiter calls you on the phone at home and says, hey, have you ever thought about joining the military? And, um, you know, back in, the, back in the day we had cable TV and HBO and, and I used to watch, I, one of my favorite movies was, was First Blood, you know, and um, – if you looked at that movie the the plight of the Vietnam veteran, it was about that. It wasn't about you know John Rambo being a being a badass it and I read a lot about Vietnam. I read a lot of um, books about Vietnam going through high school and um, you know so I get this cold call from a marine recruiter said, "You ever think about joining the military?" so I'm like, no he goes. Well, do you want to talk about it? I'm like, sure. So I went down to his office, and uh, he had me signed up for six years of motor T, which is motor motor transport, and um, I was going to drive a tractor-trailer truck in the Marine Corps, active duty, for six years. And I came back home, and my now ex-girlfriend at the time, my high school uh, girlfriend, um, Lori Lyons, who owns Beauty in the Bath in Wickford? There's a little plug for you. Um, <laughs> super businesswoman too. Um, you ought to have her on your show. Yeah, why not? But yeah. um, she's like, "Are you an idiot? You can go to New England Track to Trailer School for like seven weeks and not get screamed at and come out with the same qualifications." And I'm like, "Huh? You know, I was a high school kid. Boy, we're mm. not that smart. Girls are." And. Uh, and I said, no, I hadn't really thought of that. So um I uh I went back to the recruiter like a few months later. That guy ended up getting fired, by the way. That recruiter got fired because he was putting people in that had prior um convictions for things. And they were getting sent back from from boot camp in on in uh Paris Island. So I ended up going back to, and I did have something going on there. And um, I went back to another recruiter and Randy Brokate was his name. And I explained my situation to him and he went with me to court and told the judge, hey, he's joining the Marines, let this go. And the judge did. And um, I went into the, and I also said, hey, you're still gonna get your quota, but I wanna do something different. So he's like, "All right, well, let's look at your your ASVAB test and your GT score and stuff." And I scored a GT of a one thirteen, which one ten is the level for officer. Um, but he looked at it and he goes, "Hey, you're you look like you're you'd be a good mechanic. You know, have you ever thought about working on helicopters?" And I'm like, "No." He goes, "Well, we could make you a, a helicopter mechanic in South Weymouth, Mass, in the Marine Reserves. Would you be interested in that?" I'm like, "Yeah, that sounds awesome." So I ended up going to basic training and, um, and going to my schools and becoming a UH1N Power Plants, Rotors, and Related Systems, 6114 MOS in the Marine Reserves, and uh, I was up at South Weymouth, and another friend of mine from North Kingstown High School, grew up in Jamestown, Chris Russell, had done the same thing. He was in the reserves up there, and he transferred to the Rhode Island Army National Guard, which right out of Quant Points, right in my hometown. And I'm like, never really I had back then I never really looked up, you know what I mean, and saw all the helicopters flying around and there was there was UH ones and, and cobras there and O eight sixes and and um I went to a I had gone done two drills basically the one weekend a month, you know. So I'd done I was on my second drill with the Marines up at South Weymouth Mass and hadn't really met anybody in the squadron there and it was kinda Nobody really took me under their wing. I wasn't really doing my job that I was trained to do. And um, there was a party in Jamestown that, that Saturday night. So I drove back from, from South Weymouth, Mass., found the party in Jamestown, found Chris, and talked to him. And he goes, oh, yeah, go see this guy over in Russell Taylor was his name, the recruiter with the Rhode Island Army National Guard in, uh, at Camp Fogarty and I went over and talked to Russ Taylor and he's like yeah absolutely I showed him my certificates from the Marines and he goes yeah you you'll transfer directly into the to the unit at Quonset. so that was um over 34 years ago <laughs> um I transferred into the Rhode Island Army National Guard and I ended up working as a civilian technician there for um five and a half years. And that's, I should say military technician, because you got to be in the guard to work there. You wear the uniform, but you're on the civil service um, pay scale. But anyway, I, I worked in my own hometown as a, as a helicopter mechanic for five and a half years. And um, then I decided I wanted to fly him. And I went into the, uh, to the warrant officer um, program, which you can be a high school graduate and you can go to warrant officer candidate school and become a, a warrant officer and learn to fly and they they did and went to candidate school and crawled through the sand for six weeks come out of there and pin w1 they call you sir and they go to flight school and came out of flight school a year later grad distinguished graduate from the h1 track um which h1's the cobra uh, loved flying the h1 cobra and um did that for seven and a half years, then decided I wanted to go fixed wing and um, go to the airlines and uh, went to the fixed wing course and pretty much been flying airplanes since with a with a short stint in the Blackhawk in 2015. Um, they needed a they needed a maintenance officer and to go on a deployment. And so I, I went to the Black Hawk qualification course as a senior W-4 in uh, twenty fifteen, distinguished graduate from that one too. Thank you very much. <laughs> but uh, yeah, came out of there and deployed, de- did one deployment in the Hawk, and then came back. They needed somebody back in the in the fixed wing, and so I'm a standardization instructor pilot in the C twelve Huron with the Rhode Island Army National Guard now. After thirty five years plus in the military,
0: very cool. I, it's curious though to hear that. What one, one. One what? Very cool. Oh, oh man. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: T's and Max. Yes, and if
0: Max. you you know if you've listened to a number of podcasts before, uh, on the one on several episodes, I say very cool a lot. So Mark's going to count the amount of times I said very cool. So add two more times to that because I just said very there cool. Go. There we go. F- three more times. So um, yeah, I'm curious to hear. So you said that. Um, you weren't great in high school, right, in terms of academics? No, not at all. Why do you think you scored good on on the ASFAB tests? And
1: so, yeah, all right. So when I say I wasn't great in academics, I can I test very well. Okay. Um I just didn't do the homework. Yeah. I wasn't focused on school. Mhm. Um and yeah, I I mean, I can learn. I'm a I'm a gra- I'm the grammar Nazi. I mean, our colonel my my state aviation officer sends me stuff to proofread as long as it's not in personal in nature. He sends me stuff, Hey, red pen, this thing for me, you know, people send me stuff all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, good with, you know, I do algebra in my head cause I, and, and there's, there's the, the funny thing. It took me three years to get through algebra, right? Because you build on what you did the day before. Yeah. And I wasn't paying attention to what we did the day before I wasn't doing the homework. What we did the day before. Mm-hmm. But nowadays I'll fly and they'll you're like, when am I ever going to use algebra? Well, guess what? I'm a pilot and I'll be flying up the jet airway coming up uh the east coast and and Boston Center says, Hey, Pat 123, I'm at twenty-seven thousand feet, and they say Pat 123 cross 40 miles south of Hampton at uh twelve thousand, you know, and I'm like Okay, so I gotta lose 15,000 feet. I'm gonna go down 1,000 feet a minute. I'm doing 360 knots, which is about six miles a minute. It's gonna take me 15 minutes times six is 90, right? But I gotta do 40 miles this south of, so I gotta add 40 of that to 90, so x equals 130. That's algebra in your head, but I don't know what the formula looks like.
0: Yeah, that's the thing, is, is a lot of times they give you all these complicated formulas and there's easier ways to do them. It's just yeah. it's just like a universal way that will work in every equation, you know, because that might not work for other types of algebra equations, you know. The way that you just solved that might not work for yeah. a different way. You know what I mean? But I'm, I think algebra is very useless. It's when you start getting into calculus and they start teaching you derivatives and integrals and things like that, and it's like really makes you scratch your head and you're like... Yep. Hmm. Yeah. I've, yeah, I've
1: never taken calculus. I I got, I got through Algebra One with the help of uh, a guy, Rob Mother Robert Motherway, Mister Motherway in North Kingstown, mm-hmm. who was a former Marine, um, mm-hmm. super stern guy, and he I think he kind of recognized that I was a smart kid, um, that I wasn't applying myself, and he found ways to motivate me to apply myself, um, and uh, I passed when I was with Mister Motherway. He he figured out how to teach me yeah and um and then i took i just took algebra one for my my degree and that's all i took i never did any calculus or trigonometry or anything like that you know
0: yeah no i think it's funny because i definitely knew kids that weren't idiots like they were smart people yeah but then they got horrible grades yeah it's like you could just tell just how they talked acted you know
1: you get bored yeah it smart people get bored in school yeah with with the curriculum and and if you're not, uh, you know, your mom's a teacher, some, she knows that, you know, kids get fidgety sitting in the chair, they got to get up and move. And, yeah. and that, that ADD translates to adulthood, adult ADD. Like I'm like, you know, so that, that ADD kid is, is really a smart kid. Mm. You just need to challenge him more. Yeah. You know? So.
0: Yeah. Interesting. But, uh, I didn't say very cool, <laughs> there you go. but yeah, so as you mentioned in the beginning of the uh, podcast, uh, you said that you are a, res- a business owner.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: So if you want to go in and explain.
1: Right. So National Guardsmen um, or reservists, if you will, um, and that's a whole separate explain the difference. But um, so, you know, you do you, you hear that one, one weekend a month and two weeks during the year. That has changed, obviously, over the last 21 years with deployments. whatnot but we still train you do that one weekend a month two weeks during a year so what do those people do all those national guardsmen what do they do when they're not being national guardsmen well they have full-time jobs they're plumbers they're electricians they're bankers they're you know everything they deliver oil they drive trucks they do everything and me i was um after i i was a Full-time, when I was a full-time technician, right after I, like I said, I was working on helicopters. That was part of the full-time force there, actually working on the helicopters. Well, when I went to flight school, that was an enlisted MOS. When I went to flight school and came back, I was a pilot. I couldn't go back to being a mechanic because of a conflict of interest. So I ended up finding a job on the outside. I worked for a, a local forklift repair place. Um, did that for a couple years, and then, and I always wanted to to own a diner, and I found out that the Wickford Diner was for sale, and um, the woman that owned it prior to me uh, was just wanting to get out of the business. She had been doing it for, for like 25 years, and, and it, I I hesitate to say that she ran it into the ground. Um, You just get tired. You get tired of, you know, the the grind, if you will, and mm-hmm. I think she was tired and and it kind of wore her out. So, anyway, make a long story longer. We uh, we bought the diner um December of '96. I want to say I left the um, the forklift job and uh, bought the diner in December of '96. I owned it for three and a half years. Uh, it was it was profitable. I mean, I wasn't gonna. I realized that. So I I bought the business, and I was renting. The building, and when I started out, the rent was like eight hundred bucks a month, I think, and that was going up from when when Jan had owned the place, and it went up a hundred bucks a year. Um, you know, it was eight hundred a month. It was going up to nine hundred the next year, and then a thousand, then eleven 1, hundred, and the next year was gonna twelve hundred bucks. That's a lot of eggs, mm-hmm. you know. And it was a small diner. It was a twenty-two seat diner, fourteen at the counter, and um, four, four deuces, if you will, eight, eight more seats on, at tables. So I was, uh, like I said, I was, I was turning a profit, but the profit was getting smaller and smaller due to, you know, I couldn't expand, and the, I was just, I realized that it's, I'm not going to get rich here, and at the same time, the. I had uh, I had a, a guy come in um, on a Sunday morning. One of my regulars came in, and I was always you know I opened at four thirty in the morning. Wow! Yeah, and it was it was breakfast and lunch. So I was yeah. there. I was walking through the door at four thirty in the morning. That's another part of the grind, you know. Um, it's hard. Yeah, getting up at four a.m. Do people actually show up? Oh yeah, yeah, Stevie yeah. Seymour would be following me in the door right, right behind me. You know wow. what I mean? And I'd walk in literally, flick the lights on, turn the coffee machine on, hit that as I'm walking by, and Stevie and Tripp were walking in behind me, the fisherman, the local fisherman. Yeah. I I did, I want to say, maybe I, I can't give you an exact, maybe 20% of my business between 4 30 slash five o'clock in the morning till 7 a.m. Wow. Yeah. Big chunk. Yeah. You know, people coming in, the fishermen. Um but uh anyway, I uh, I was in there on a Sunday morning, nineteen ninety-eight. And when I got out of I gotta back up a little bit. So when I got out of flight school, my mom was working for G Tech at the time, and they had a um an S seventy six helicopter, and I think they had a jet. So, I'm a helicopter pilot now. My mom's like, hey, you got to put your resume in with G Tech. You never know. I'm like, mom, I have 150 flight hours. You need, like, you know, I have zero experience. She's like, just put your thing in. So, I put my resume in. They come back with a, with a form letter, dear Mark, you know, and filled in our minimums are 2,500 hours of flying experience to even apply. So, I'm getting a hundred hours a year, 110 hours a year. Okay, I can apply in 24 more years, Mm -hmm. basically. So that was 1994, you know, February 94. Here we are four years later, I'm up to maybe 400, 500 hours of flying time. And um, I'm in the uh, the restaurant, seven o'clock in the morning on a Sunday morning, one of my regulars comes in with another guy and they have a map of the bay and they're sitting there talking and I'm cooking, getting them coffee and whatnot. And it's the only two of the two of them were the only two in there at the time. And um, they're talking and they're like back then they were looking at putting the container port over at Quonset. And my the local's like, Oh, he goes, I think it's gonna go over here and he's kinda pointing at the map and I said, I looked at it, I said, No, I said I said, look, here's Quonset. here's the runways one, six, three, four and five two, three, and I said, This over here is calf Calf pasture point, it's called they're gonna fill in this this spot over here and build a container port over there. And his friend, my local friend that was with him, he goes, he goes, hey, the way you say that, you sound like a pilot. And I said, Yeah, well, I, I fly Cobras for the for the Rhode Island Guard, you know, and he goes, Oh, he goes, um, he goes, What ratings do you have? Because you have civilian ratings too, you know. So I'm like, oh, I said I have my my commercial instrument helicopter. And I said, I have my private pilot, fixed wing, you know, airplane, single engine land. He goes, so he goes, I'm a captain for United. I fly 737s out of Houston. He goes, if you had the rest of your ratings and five, he goes, how many hours do you have? I'm like, "Ah, I got about 500. He goes, if you had the rest of your ratings and 500 more hours, he said, our commuter would pick you up. And I'm like, what? And he goes, yeah. He goes, they are hurting for pilots right now. This is this was, I want to say, like August of 1998. Mm-hmm. So the next day, I called up um, one of my mentors in the guard. He was a CW5, Joe Ludovici. He owned um, Skylanes Flight School up at North Central. That's where I got my my uh, fixed wing, my private pilot rating. So I called Joe. I said, hey, Joe, I want to finish my ratings. I'm going to go to the airlines. You know, I was pretty much done with the restaurant business at that point, And this was only... Less than two years in, I was just like, I, I knew it wasn't going to go anywhere and I could fly. That's my dream, you know? So he's like, ah, you're too old. At the time, I was 31. He goes, you're too old. I said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. You know what I mean? I'm not going to take no for an answer, you know? So he's like, all right, well, come down tomorrow and, and we'll we'll get started, you know? So I did. And I started on my instrument rating and um, I finished my instrument, finished my, my multi. And uh, I did my instrument rated, did my commercial rating, went and got my multi-engine rating at action air down in groton and then i did my flight instructor rating and um went to uh i ended up getting hired by by the airlines after i was uh after um i went to the fixed wing course for the rhode island guard too Mm because i applied for that
0: so So is is a fixed wing rating so like
1: Fixed wing is an airplane. Yeah, obviously. Rotary wing yeah. is a helicopter. Okay. So, sorry, but like
0: yeah. does, the, does the fixed wing apply for like is it all planes or is it a type of class of planes?
1: There's class. So, okay. well, you have category and class, yes. So okay. category being rotary wing, fixed wing, and then your class is single-engine land, multi-engine land, single-engine C, multi-engine C. Those are your classes. Mm-hmm. So one engine – Two and when you say multi-engine, it's two, three, four, six. Doesn't matter. It's just a multi-engine airplane.
0: Yeah. You know. Okay. Yeah, because I mean, I've I've flown out of Blo- uh, out of Westerly mm-hmm. to Block Island before, yeah, yeah. and those planes and the those, those are really yeah. cool.
1: The Islanders. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, there's the Islanders, and then they got the the small like six-passenger. Six. Yeah. Ch- tricky. six. Okay. Yeah. yeah. that one is really interesting because they have to like almost go double the altitude than the Islanders, right? The smaller planes?
1: Not really. No? Okay.
0: No. But does it go higher?
1: Than the the Islander?
0: Yeah. Does it need to fly higher? Doesn't no. need to, no. Because I remember the one time that we went in the smaller plane that she went much higher than we mm. would go in the Islanders for some right. reason. I don't know. Well,
1: All right. So maybe she was doing it for a glide. Mm. So it's single engine, right? So you definitely – you're more risk if you stay low in a single engine because if you lose your engine, now you're going in the water. Yeah. Whereas if you take off out of Westerly, going to the block, and you climb up over land, you climb up to – let's say 3,000, 3,500 feet and then start towards the block and you lose an engine, you get a better chance of either gliding to the block or you're going to f- glide back to westerly or to land. Cause that's what, what I
0: thought she got to for altitude. Yeah, yeah. And then I remember being in the Islander and the guy saying that we were at like 1500 yeah. feet. Yeah.
1: Cause if you lose an engine in the Islander, you got another one to, yeah. to keep going. yeah.
0: But it's, it's kind of funny though. Cause I've never like been that close to a pilot in, mm-hmm. you know, a plane before and just like driving, everybody flies differently is that Mm -hmm. fair to say yep and there was this one guy who i think his name was chris i don't know but he was looking at what to do if the plane was going to crash and i was sitting i'm looking over his shoulder i'm like why are you looking at that dude like (laughs) like why i don't know if he was doing it as a prank i think he might have but but he would fly like very fidgety like he always seemed like super tense it yeah, was yeah. weird. But then this guy looked like he came straight out of Top Gun. He had the aviators. He had different headphones than everybody. He had Bose headphones. Everybody else had like these blank black ones and he would get in and he if I guarantee you he drives like a lean, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he and he flies a plane like no issues. And there was a woman with a camera and she's like, Hey, could you do a lap around the island? I want to take some pictures He goes, Yeah, no
1: problem you know and I'm sure and, his boss thanks him for that burning... I don't know. know. <laughs> I don't know. As, as he's burning 20 gallons an hour. At, <laughs> I know. <at> 20, <laughs> 20 bucks a gallon or whatever. Yeah. And then the, funny. then the
0: one woman who was flying, she had said that she was doing it for like 30 years. <laughs> she was really good too. It's so funny yeah. but, because you would see her, she'd get there and she'd start yelling like, this is what you got. These are the seating arrangements. You need to get there, blah, blah, blah. She must have been in the military or something. But... Mm. um she would she i think she was probably the most consistent you know yeah yeah i think if i would to go flying again i'd be with her because she was you know the best but that was really cool experience you know yeah it's a lot of fun it is it's the the first time i did it i was like i don't want to do this i said i have too much love for i hate planes anyways and i yeah because i never like commercial flights i'm just not into it okay I don't know.
1: Oh, my God. We were coming to land and the wing dipped down, and I thought we were going to die. Because it's I don't crosswind know. landing. It's <laughs> I don't know. It's totally just, normal.
0: It's just always, I don't know. Maybe just because I hadn't done it a lot. Right. Probably. Yeah. You know, because I think I've only been on a plane, you know, because we'd only fly to Florida. So, like, on a commercial flight. Before 2016, I was on a plane, like, maybe two or three times, I guess. Mm-hmm. And then after that, like, still only. So, maybe less than 10 times I've been on a commercial flight. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like, I was getting on that plane. I was like, I don't know. I was like closing my eyes. I was like, <laughs> I <don't know. laughs> but yeah. So I have some uh, more questions about the Wickford Diner. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it
1: kind of went off on a tangent when we were talking about that and ended up in the airlines. You know, no, so, it happens. It's like yeah, whatever. Yeah.
0: But um, what was the most difficult thing about owning a restaurant? Employees. Okay.
1: It's the most difficult thing about any business. Yeah. Yeah. So I and especially the restaurant that I have, right? Or I had opening at 4:30 in the morning mm-hmm. and you close it too, all right? So you have to have somebody else either you're doing it every single day or you have to find somebody that's that you can trust that's going to wake up at 4 or wherever it takes to, for them to walk through your door at 4:30 in the morning and open up the door and get the get the place running and there's this something called ownership mentality. I'm, I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but um, when you're an employee of somebody like ownership mentality is, Hey, you are running this business like you own it, mm-hmm. you know, and to, to have somebody have ownership mentality is priceless. Number one, but it's hard to come by too. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, and in a business like that 4:30 in the morning to crack the door and have people following you in the door and yeah, it's it's not easy. Did enough. you
0: ever find that person?
1: I had a couple people that were that were fairly trustworthy. Mm-hmm. Um I had some people that tried to tried to steal the business out from under me. Literally. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Like, and I had the guy next door, um, there was a t-shirt shop next door, like a kind of a Wickford knick store. And, um, there was a, the guy next door is awesome, Dave. And, um uh, he had a, he had a, uh, a friend of his, Tony was, um, this little guy, little Italian dude. He was, I swear he was like Joe Pesci. He was like connected in New York. Yeah, not kidding. Like... And he was he was always hanging out there, black leather jacket, you know, hair slicked back and great guy. Great yeah. guy. And um he always kinda of watched things going on and uh he you know, he pulled me aside one day and he goes, Hey, he said, um, you know, those those two people are, are trying to trying to convince the, the doc that owned the building next door that rented it to me. They're trying to convince them not to renew your lease and so that they can take the business from you basically i'm like really wow yeah they got fired yeah that day wow like, gone um i had another kid stealing from me like we had a drawer so like you know you get your, your drawer it for people to operate you know it, it had 80 bucks in cash and then whatever the change was was mm-hmm. the change and we kept it over the thing and um in the door going back into the kitchen and the the kid would come in in the morning and whoever was working in the morning, you'd come in, you'd grab the drawer, you put it in the register and close it, and you're ready to go. You had you know a twenty two tens, four fives, and twenty ones, let's say whatever that I think that comes up to eighty bucks if I remember but um th- we had a standard that was the standard, and they were coming in in the morning, and it was short, like it was like there was fifty two dollars in there or there was like forty four dollars in there or like it was not 80 and we did the same thing every day and so i got a um i went to i went to uh warwick to the spy shop and bought one of those little cameras little spy camera that records to a vcr tape Mm -hmm. and i lined it up i drilled a little hole i had a refrigerator that was a a stainless steel fridge that was like kind of tall and it was right next to like it was pointing right at the thing i lined up the camera it was hidden pointing right at the drawer and just went and bought a went to walmart and bought one of those you know extended play record tapes and um it was like a, a three or four hour gig and sure enough next day when it was, uh, or a couple days, only took a couple days. Didn't happen every night, you know what I mean? But uh, a couple days, um, somebody came in, said, uh, somebody was opening up, said, hey, the drawer's short. I'm like, done. So I went and grabbed the tape. And I had a buddy of mine who was, he was a captain on the um, North Kingstown Police Department. And uh, going back, he was my roommate in and East Greenwich he was one of the ones that got me my full-time job as a technician in the Rhode Island Guard mm-hmm. he's like oh you know so um anyway I, I called him up and uh, I was like hey Rob I was like I got this tape he goes oh bring it in he goes he was he was the captain of the detectives he, and um so he goes Oh, bring it in he goes we got a VCR tape and player in here he goes we can we can watch it in here so I brought it in and sure enough here was the kid and he was a little he was a little you know heroin addict basically he was stealing the money and going and buying heroin, you know? So yeah. Wow. Worst part about owning a business. That's love. The employees. Yep. And right. I took care of these people too. I took care of them. Yeah. You know what I mean? I didn't, um, I, I was, a. I would say I was a good. And a funny thing was the next morning. So the next morning he was opening yeah. at four 30. So I, I got up, I was fuming. This was a Saturday morning and I went in at four 30 and you know, we're chopping potatoes so I go and I grab a knife, <laughs> the big chef's knife, and I'm chopping potatoes, talking to him. And I'm like, you know, I can't remember the kid's name. I think it was Seth, but I'm like, hey, you know, I'm like, talking to him, like, how's it going? Da-da-da, you know, and, and he's clearly like, what are you doing here? You know, and I'm like, do you think I'm a good boss? You know, do I take care of you guys? And I'm just chopping potatoes and I got the knife, you know, and yeah, 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 you're good, you know, and you take care of us, you know, and I'm like, I'm like, well, I'm just wondering why the Frick, you're st- and I, you know, you you're st- you're stealing money from me, and his he's face went ashen white. Mm. Like I'm like, cause and I grabbed him by the scruff and dragged him over. I said, "See that little hole right there?" I said, "It watched you walk in here last night and steal money from me." And I'm like, literally, he was a hundred pounds soaking wet. I had him by the throat up yeah. the, off the ground. How much you weigh, Mark? Just
0: so people know how tall me? you are. Yeah,
1: I'm six three. At the time, I was only like 200 pounds. Okay. 220 now. Yeah. Okay. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was. <laughs> Just so people know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was, I was not happy with it. Yeah. Him. And um, yeah, he paid, he paid it back what he owed me. I took it out of his pay. Yeah. You know what I mean, I said I'm still gonna pay you some, but I'm attaching your wages. You know. Yeah. So. I, I mean, employees. That's that's the answer to your question. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> all
0: right. So we're gonna flip the script here. What was the most rewarding thing about owning a, the restaurant?
1: Um, it was it was fun. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like having regulars that came in literally every single day. Like you knew, and they ate the same thing every single day. Yeah. When they came in, they knew you knew exactly what they were gonna have, and. Um, I had worked at a place called Ed's Roost in East Greenwich when I was a kid, when I was in high school and, uh, my sister and I worked there and, and Eddie was, uh, Eddie Amoroso was a, uh, former Marine also. And, uh, I kind of got some guidance from him and, but, uh, Eddie would see somebody coming in, like he'd see somebody pull up across the street, one of his regulars that he knew he would like, you know, two eggs over easy and, and white toast with a coffee and, like, the guy would pull in and be like, Mark, throw some white toast down. And I'd just, like, boom, drop it. And he'd already have the eggs on the grill. And the guy would come walking in. And as the guy's walking in and sitting down, you know, maybe some traffic was going by. It took him a minute. As he's walking in, sitting down, the coffee's being slid in front of him. And his plate's there, you know, with, with two eggs over and, and white toast. And he was just like, you know, that that type of service yeah. is what Ed ingrained in me. And I used to see, you know... Jim, I can't remember his last name, but Jim used to work. He was a, um, he was a state, um, officer at the state house, like a police officer at the state house. He used to have two over hard with white toast and coffee every day. And I'd see him pull up and throw them on there and kind of do the same thing. And Jim loved that, you know, it was like, Oh, you know, and yeah, yeah, it was, it was fun. It was, um, it was fun being in the heart of Wickford, um, having the, the locals and, the, the, the good camaraderie there, if you will, yeah. by those those people, you know, and d- discussing politics and whatnot in the, you know, reading the newspaper and discussing the local news and the national news and everything, and, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, was, it was a lot of fun.
0: It's funny because so. I just had on, uh, somebody else is from Wickford, uh, she has a magazine called The Wickford Way. I listened to it. Okay, yeah. 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 Yep. I just thought that was funny, you know, to have these yep. episodes back to back. But I did actually look at a, a place to rent. For this business in Wickford, um, but then the guy told me how much rent was. I'm like, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> it is insane. Yeah, and it the was rent, like, yeah, it was the, it was like the three story yellow building. You know, what I'm talking about. I don't. It's like seven, like on the main street. It's like the yep. building was it on number main is street seven. Or
1: was it on Brown Street? <laughs> was, I think it was on
0: Main Street because it was all the, all of the businesses were next to it. You know, and so
1: the mis the misnomer of wickford yeah. if you're if you're not familiar let's say you know where i live so you come yeah. from my house and you go down into wickford you go over the hussy bridge yeah. a little cement bridge yeah. and you make that right yeah that road right there right okay what road is that
0: you make the right um, so you
1: go now you're driving through wickford
0: yeah is that Brown
1: Street? That's Brown okay. Street. <laughs> main Street is when you get to the end and you either make a right or you make a left that goes over to the liquor store and out towards yeah. Post Road. That's West Main. And then yeah. if you make the right, that's Main Street that goes down to the dock. Yeah. So the main the main street through Wickford is really Brown Street so it's kind of funny
0: yeah i mean yeah because the guy wanted like a thousand bucks a month for uh area as big as that office in this this room that we're in right now it is so like 250 feet
1: yep and they will probably they might get it and if they do the business won't be able to sustain itself it'll have to be like Like, a lawyer or something like my yeah or like my diner Mm. like it kept going up a hundred bucks a month. By the time I was leaving there, it was 1300 a month. So, you know, it, it's a, it's a big nut to crack.
0: Yeah. So, and, and, and talk about like owner mentality. A lot of people don't realize that some, in some cases business owners make less than their employees. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. And people you know. don't realize that And like, I don't take any money from my business right now. Every, oh, yeah. everything yeah. that I make goes back into the business. I'm very yeah. lucky. I have a great family. To yeah. support me, you yep. know, and um, people don't realize that. Like, I would work. I'm not going to say the places, but I would work. I've worked at a few different places. Yeah, I've mm-hmm. worked at a restaurant, and there's always these guys that would be saying, "Oh, this guy takes all the money. He pockets all the money." And and you know, we work. We do all the work. It's like, well, I mean, have the dream exactly. Do do you
1: you lay awake yeah. at night yeah. wondering whether you can pay the bills yeah. or not? Exactly. You know what I mean? Like what, you know one of my best friend Gordy Kilday, mm-hmm. he owns Quonset Autobot. We're trying to get him on Kingstown. the podcast. You, podcast. you need to, Gordy, yeah. you need to you need to get on here. Yeah. But um, you know, he's he has he learned that business when we were kids. His dad taught him the business basically from day one. Like, you know, Gordy wanted to go in the front of office and his dad's like, No, go out there and sweep the shop. You mm-hmm. know, and then it, and he brought him all the way through it. So he learned each level of the business, right up to Brilliant. finish bodywork and, yeah. and painting and everything. And so now he's operating this business, and it's 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 great. You know, he's he. It, it's a it's a great business in town, well known, highly sep- respected, like highly respected. Yeah. Um, it's I I don't know how many employees he has, but. You know, it's the same in any business. They will complain. But, you know, he's the guy that's that's laying awake at night, making sure that, you know, when the pandemic hits and nobody's driving anywhere, that he makes the payroll for these guys. And he makes sure that they're still employed mm-hmm. and and their health insurance is paid and the light bills are paid. And the, people don't realize, you know, what it takes to run a business. Yeah. They just, you know. they
0: they think the cash just starts rolling yeah. in and you yeah. get all of it and they get some of it. Right. You know, and, and it's it's ridiculous. And my buddy has a 68 uh, Cadillac uh, Coupe de Ville. I've seen it. it. Yeah, you've seen yeah, it. Yeah. I've seen and, and Gordon did some work on it. Yeah, yeah. Because some, some, yeah. some guy hit him when he was coming out of Cumbies. Mm-hmm. And I and I texted Gordon the pictures and I called him. I was just like, hey, can my friend bring this car? And he goes, yeah, I'd love to work on it. He had it done fairly quickly. Um and the car looks like new. And he yeah. was like they sourced the parts from like some junkyard in North Carolina or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And and it was a pristine, you know, Cadillac or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean it was a junkyard but the parts on like right. the body was good. No rot. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But um yeah, just highly respected, highly recommended. Yeah. Yeah. Um and hopefully he can come on the podcast if he can get a chance. Yeah. Um so go back to employees. You know, when you were hiring, you know, what did you look for in an employee? Like, what made you say, "All right, you'd be a good fit here"?
1: Um, you know, it's kind of funny. It's it's hard to um, experience helps. Um, trustworthiness is is huge, and looking at them, and you think like it, it's hard to judge people from the beginning like you know i had a kid stealing from me he was a little heroin addict Mm -hmm. he presented well no didn't had no idea no idea um recommendations from others you know um that goes a long way um you know in in the breakfast and lunch dinner or or breakfast and lunch diner um it's having a having a college degree a culinary degree isn't necessarily required for that, you know what I mean, but having experience is mm-hmm. um, I would take resumes, one of the things that you look at on there and if they did have a have a degree all the better um you know having a degree isn't necessarily about or a col- or even a high school diploma it's not necessarily about you know oh you have a college degree it's about finishing things trainability um that you're not a quitter you know high school diploma to to begin with so if you are going to drop out of high school and go to work you're like i don't want to do this i'm going to go to work all right well i'm an employer and i'm going to ask you well why did you drop out of high school and your response is, well, I didn't get along with the teachers. Okay, so you're probably not gonna get along with me. Or the work was too hard, I, I, I couldn't do it. Okay, so the work here is gonna to be too hard and you're gonna quit. You know, or I couldn't learn. Okay, then you're not trainable, you know what I mean? It's, learn, it's whether you're trainable, whether you're gonna stick it out, like, or do I wanna train you and then you're gonna go, oh, the work's too hard and I'm, you know, I'm gonna leave. You know, so, yeah.
0: Yeah, interesting. I mean, I ask a lot of different business owners that, and it's always been one of the most difficult things uh, business owners face other than uh, the state and taxes. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yep. uh, I mean, for me, that's what it's been, you know, just getting a business registered and taxes and yeah, things yeah. like that because… Uh, it's brutal. Yeah, they don't teach brutal. you anything. They they say, all right, here's your LLC good luck. And then they go waste money on all this other stuff. Like why don't you put in a system where you can inform new business owners of the taxes, you know, give an example of a business model, you know, let's say restaurant, these are the types of taxes you're expected to collect and pay. This is how you do it. This is where you can do it, you know, and have a pamphlet that goes to every new business owner, something like that where it, it, it makes it easy to understand. Right. You know, because I had to ask two CPAs whether or not I should collect sales tax for making custom orders. Neither of them really knew. You know, but they guessed. You know, it makes sense. You know, you know, like why can't why can't I get an answer from the state? You know, it's like you you, you email the Rhode Island Division of Taxation and they give you a blanket statement that doesn't make any sense. Yeah. You know, and it it sucks. And then yeah. and it's funny they have like a 1.5 star review. on google yeah yeah and i'm like i don't know why i expected that to be higher but um i'm not surprised that it's lower (laughs) but um yeah so i don't know uh this is kind of a interesting question but i i thought about it you know obviously it's very difficult to hire employees right now nobody wants to work right um just because of the system that's set up right now
1: yeah
0: what sort of advice would you give to a business owner right now to incentivize somebody to go work for them, I mean, obviously money is a factor, but maybe something else that you could think of. You know, what sort of advice would you give?
1: Yeah, uh, that that is a tough question. Yeah, because you know, I was just I was listening to the Vintage uh, Cigar Lounge podcast that you had the other day, and 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 Greg and Tommy were were spot on. Like, it is a it is a employees market right now yeah and um i mean what what advice do you give a business owner it's like unless you need somebody who is specific like let's say auto body i need a, a body man you know you can't just hire somebody that walks in off the street and goes yeah i can I can, I'm a body, you know, I'll, I'll do that. No, it takes some training Mm -hmm. to do that, you know, or, but, uh, maybe a waitress or something, you know, well, you, it's, it's hard, but you might give somebody, you know, do you have experience? Well, no, I've never waitressed before, but you know, you, you might have to go out on that limb and, and train them and work with them and but take them in because there's, they're going to go to the next restaurant that, that might say, yeah, I'll take you even without an experience, you know? Um, yeah, I, you know, you never want to say lower the bar. <laughs> yeah. Cause you have a, you have to, your business has to, has to have a standard, you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. you wouldn't, um, I wouldn't, want somebody when i had the restaurant i always said that breakfast is about presentation you know what i mean like putting it on the plate and i would teach the people that cooked for me like my place was small so you were if you're working out front you're a grill cook pouring coffee waiting on the on the front and whatnot and so i taught people how to cook and and the presentation like you know you could just take the eggs throw them on the plate throw the the home fries on the plate toss the bacon on there throw the the toast on there and it'll look like crap you know and then hand it to the people and it it tastes the same but it doesn't look that good when you put the the eggs over in the corner and the Mm. home fries over here and the bacon laid out on the side and then tuck that toast on the edge you look at that it's all about presentation so yeah i mean to to incentivize um employees and of course i've been out of the haven't been a business owner in in 22 years now so i don't i don't know what good advice to give somebody yeah, okay. in, in this I, in this market it's i was tough. just curious to ask tough. you that because yeah, yeah. you
0: have not been in right in business for a long time yeah you know? i mean
1: yeah i i i would i would say you got to take a risk on somebody maybe who has less experience than you want. Don't lower
0: the bar. Just give more people a chance. Yeah. Give them a chance. And also,
1: also just be patient and train them. Yeah. Train them to your expectations.
0: Very interesting. And the last question I have about the, uh, business, the, the diner is, would you do it again?
1: No, No, I wouldn't, you know, um, it was, it's, it's hard, you know, and, and, I'm 20 years older now too. You know what I mean? When I was doing that, I was I was 30, 31 years old, and what was it, 96? So I was 29 till I was 31 or so that I owned it. And getting up at four o'clock in the morning at that point in time was was a lot easier than now. I'm waking up at four in the morning to go pee. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, <laughs> but I'm going back to bed afterwards. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Kind of funny, but uh, it it, it is. It's a hard thing to do. I like, like I said, I loved my customers, loved mm-hmm. my regulars. There was asshole customers too. You know yeah. I mean? When I, I remember when the first couple weeks when I took over and girl Geraldine was working for me and this guy, it was a Saturday morning and this guy came in and we put a cup of coffee in front of him and he got a, a bagel or something. And he was like mouthing off to her. Like he was giving her crap. Um, About something, you know, and and I'm like, I walked over and I took the bagel away from him, took the coffee away from him. I said, "Go." I said, "You're not going to talk to my employees like that." You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, the customer isn't always right either. You know the, what I mean? The, they, they say the customer's always right. The well, customer definitely came up with
0: that. Yeah, yeah. That saying. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah. And her name was Karen. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, it, I. I don't know. A lot of people say I'm an old man, um, but I definitely love going to diners and going out to breakfast. In oh, that's the morning. awesome. I love pick, it.
1: Pick the pick the local place, the yeah. small local mom and pop restaurant. Don't yeah. go to don't go to Denny's, Denny's or yeah. you know IHOP. Yeah, yeah. Pick that local mom and pop. Give them the business. Mm-hmm. Keep them employed. That's that is supporting. You know the, the economy more than mm-hmm. supporting, you know, big Pe- business and whatnot. It's and phenomenal. People and you're going to get, you're going to get better service and, and better food. Oh my
0: gosh. Yeah. And, and people don't realize how low the margins are in the food industry as well, you know, yeah. like if you don't understand what margins are, if people don't understand what margins are, it's just like the markup of your cost. Essentially, right. you know, if a bagel costs you $1 to buy, uh, you're going to mark it up, you know, to dollar 80. You know, or something right. like that, and even that's high, yeah. you know, for, for the food industry. Yeah. But I mean, and then you make eighty cents on the bagel or whatever. Well, or do you? Because you do also you.
1: have to toast it. You also have to put butter on it. And then it you got to pay the employee yeah. to do that. And, gonna, yeah. and then yeah. you got
0: to pay the electricity. Yep. And yep. So it's yeah. more like it's more like cost is a dollar forty cents, and then yep. you make forty cents on it. You know. Yeah. yeah. And and I, I definitely like there used to be the old mill diner. Over, yep. over here, my dad yeah. and I went there for years and then yeah. COVID killed it. Yeah. And then there's a Sly Fox den there now and they're good, but I think it's going to take them all up cause there was this one waitress there who, you know, there was this one for like the first probably five or six years and then the same one and then a different one after that. And she was awesome. You know, there's like maybe three waitresses there the whole time yeah, yeah. and they knew who we were, you know, yeah, it was yeah. awesome yep. and it's just great. Yeah. You know, and now it's hard to find a place like that, yeah. which is very unfortunate. Right. Um, but yeah, now I would like to get back into your time as a pilot and into the military. Um. So, did you know if you know when you were a kid that you always wanted to be a pilot?
1: Yeah. What's kind of funny is, um, so when I was very young, my mom and my stepdad took me and my sister for a ride. I want to say it was out of Hyannis, um, Mass. Um, and just like in a little Cessna, little four seat Cessna and with the pilot and sightseeing. And I remember being at like 2000 feet might've been on a new bed for 2000 feet over buzzards Bay. I was probably three years old and I wanted out of that plane. <laughs> and I was, it, it took my mom and my stepdad to hold me down. I was getting out of that plane at 2000 feet over buzzards Bay, but it, which was kind of funny, but um by the, at the same token, my mom used to bring me down to um, New Bedford Airport all the time, and I want to say it was Yellowbird Airlines back then. I, I think they flew the DC9s or 727s into New Bedford at the time. It was a car, local cargo, and I loved seeing the jets. and um, it was uh, it was a lot of fun, and I, you know I, the funny thing is, though, I get air sick. And I can still get really? I can still get airsick. I belong on the island of misfit toys, you know. Huh. How'd you like to be a pilot that gets airsick? You know, <laughs> that's on the Charlie in the box. Yeah. But um, I uh, yeah. When I went to into the guard, I would as a mechanic, I would work on the helicopter, and then we would go on what's called a maintenance test flight. If depending on whether it needed it or not, you know, the certain component that you repaired. Required a maintenance test flight. And I would go on maintenance test flights with some of the the maintenance test pilots and Cobras. You'd be in the front seat of the Cobra, and the maintenance test pilot was in the back seat, and you're just along for the ride, you know. And a Cobra is a ball. It yeah. is so much fun. And That's a really small
0: helicopter. Yeah, right? it's yeah. narrow, like three. Yeah.
1: It's not necessarily small, it's the same frame as a Huey but okay. it's just narrow, narrow you know yeah. with the gun racks on the side and and dave Nuttall my old commander and first commander in the in the rhode island national guard dave was a maintenance test pilot full-time in the on the civil service tech and um i remember going with him first riding a cobra and coming right down here because we used to go by the the um what do you call it we would do our maintenance test flights over the the um the grass fields here the turf, okay. turf farms yeah. yeah right because if you lose an engine you can auto rotate in a helicopter believe it or not it's probably safer than an airplane because you can just point put it into a small field yeah. there's an airplane you got to find a, a strip to land on yeah you know? but um coming up to like and he was an old these guys were old vietnam guys that i that i was flying with and that i learned to fly with um but I remember going like 1,500 feet, just and we were doing what's called rotor tracking or rotor smoothing. You the making sure that the blades, the helicopter blades, are going through the same path, all right. And it's all adjustments and whatnot because if they're not going through the same path, you'd get like a, a vibration mm. or whatever. So we're doing rotor smoothing, and he's got the Cobra doing like 130 knots. We're just cranking along like. Bada, 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 bada. 1500 feet and he just kind of like stands it up on its tail brings it up like 20 degrees nose up gets up to the and it you know it peels off speed and it gets to the top where it pretty much stops and he just does a pedal turn and then and then goes back down it's called a return to target they used to do it in vietnam all the time so they would be be doing a gun run and then they'd pitch up and then they'd return to the target they just and literally the helicopter comes to a total stop and that yeah car, and they literally kick pedal the helicopter pivots 180 degrees yeah and then you just drop the collective back forward and you and i've done it now <laughs> times in a hundred times i way. would
0: i would crap my pants <laughs> it's
1: he did that we popped up pivoted over and i'm facing i'm like 30 degrees nose down and just shoop, right no, back out the you. other way <laughs> oh, my, oh god. my god it was so awesome <laughs> yeah though. i was like and you know I got a little ill, but I was like, "This is so cool." Yeah. And and there was there was a lot of time. I went on a lot of maintenance test flights, and and um, I got a kind of funny story. So I was um, the the now adjutant general for the state of Rhode Island was is uh, Major General Chris Callahan. So we do in the National Guard they do what's called additional flight training periods. Okay, which means they come in, you know, the one weekend a month, two weeks during a year, you're not really a proficient pilot if you're flying once a month. So you do these AFTPs, they're called, and you come in during the month, different times of the month, and you'll hear the, I'm sure folks in Rhode Island, you've heard the helicopters flying around at night. That's us training. Um, So. General Callahan, then Captain, or I think he was Lieutenant Callahan at the time. (laughs) I've known him a long time. He was Lieutenant Callahan at the time. Um, He lived up in Woburn, Mass., or Waltham, and he used to drive down. That's another commitment that a lot of guard people um, have that a lot of regular citizens don't realize. These folks, we had guys that live in New Hampshire and out in Mass, Western Mass, that travel to, to come to drill you know, and, and to train. And anyway, to make a long story longer, General Callahan had come down, Lieutenant Callahan had come down to do an AFTP, and the kid that was supposed to fly with him, like, canceled. So he had driven an hour and a half to come do an AFTP. He had nobody to fly with, and I'm like, hey, I'll fly with you, sir. You know, and he was like, eh, I don't think you really like me too much at the time, but, you know, um, he's like, all right. So we dragged the, we were in an OH-6, the little egg-looking thing, looks like an egg, and um, so we drag it out and pre-flighted and stuff. And he goes, all right. So we're talking and he goes, well, he says, you've flown with Joe Lopes before, right? And I'm like, well, yeah. He goes, all right. You know, so when we go out flying, he goes, I'll, I'll let you fly a little bit. I'm like, oh, cool. You know, so, so we go out and we're flying. At, it was what's called night unaided. So we didn't have night vision goggles on. Mm-hmm. We're just flying around at night. It's beautiful. That's one of my favorites is just flying at night. Yeah. Unaided. I love it. So we fly over my, my then-girlfriend's house. We're circling around there, and we're flying. He goes, all right. He goes, if you, uh, if you want to take the controls, you can. I'm like, okay. I'm like, uh, what do I do? And he looks at me like, gives me this look like, you know, we're in a helicopter <laughs> sitting this far apart. And he, he looks at me like, what do you mean? What do, what do you do? He goes, you told me you flew at Joe before. I'm like, well, yeah, I've flown with Joe. I've never wiggled the stick. And he's like, oh, you know. (laughs) So so I was General Callahan's first flight student (laughs) ever. He ended up going on, becoming an instructor pilot in Hueys and, and in Blackhawks and battalion command and obviously now he's the leader of the rhode island national guard but i was general callahan's first flight student he's like all right he goes right on the controls with me and you know he kind of showed me and it was it was really cool and he let me do some turns and stuff yeah just wiggle it around it was it was a lot of fun that's (laughs) hilarious yeah that was that was kind of funny that's like something you've seen
0: a movie yeah yeah (laughs) it really is like like, what (laughs) (laughs) "What?" you know that's that's awesome and it's and my next question is you know so you, you were a mechanic before you became a pilot. Did being a mechanic help you become a better pilot?
1: It, I wouldn't say it helped me become a better pilot, mm-hmm. but I um, <laughs> when I went to when I went to to flight school, um, we uh, you know you start out in in um, your first classes that you do are aeromed, so it's all about your your eyes and your ears and. You know, how, how flying affects the body, hypoxia, lack of oxygen in the air. The higher you go up, you, the air gets thinner, stuff mm-hmm. like that. And then so you do that for two weeks and then, or a week, and then you go over to systems. And I learned to fly. Back then it was Hueys that, that they were training to fly on. So I went to systems class, and it, the systems class was about Hueys. I had been a mechanic for five and a half years on Hueys, and it's basic stuff, you know, so I walk in, Staff Sergeant Steinman was the instructor, I walk in, Staff Sergeant Steinman, I walked right up to him, like, hey, listen, I said, I was a mechanic for five and a half years at at an AASF in Rhode Island, I said, I'm going to go up in the back, and I'm going to fall asleep, and I'm just going to sleep, don't be offended, but I'm like, really, (laughs) you know, and I said, if I start to snore, just have somebody give me an elbow and I don't want to disturb your class. And he goes, ah, oh, no problem, sir. He goes, I get it. You know? So I literally went up in the back, slept for a week, like, and it was like test time, woke up, whoop, whoop, took the test, took me about five minutes, hundred, you know, not it, but it's basic stuff, you know, mm-hmm. um, understanding the mechanics and whatnot. I would say going on the maintenance test flights, wiggling the stick once in a while, that helped me out a little bit. Um, it it helps to understand how the machine works, but doesn't necessarily translate to, you know, helping you get through flight school. You know, flying is, is, is fairly simple. They literally can teach a monkey to do it. It's learning all the rules and regulations. Mm. That's the hard part. You yeah, know what I mean, that's the that's the hard thing.
0: Yeah, you know. So it so I mean I guess this kind of is a I don't know. What do you find is the most diff- is it the re- the the regulations and things is the most difficult part about flying? Do you, yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. You know, okay. I mean, it's it literally is I could take you up in a in a the Cessna, and I've taken people up before. I've taught people from from day one. Like, if you walked into Skylanes and said, mm-hmm. "Hey, I want to learn to fly," because that's what people do at mm-hmm. one point in time. They have no experience whatsoever. They walk through the door and they're like hey, I wanna to learn to fly. Be like, all right, well, let's go out and, and I'll, hey, this, this is what the controls are and we'll taxi out and you will do the taxiing, I'll help you, but basically you do the taxiing, you taxi out, we make some radio calls, I'll do that, and be like, all right, push this in at 16 miles, 60 knots, you're gonna basically pull back until the nose comes off the ground. When the nose comes off the ground, stop pulling and just hold what you got and the airplane will fly off the ground, A little bit of trim, you can take your hand off the yoke Feed off the pedals and that plane airplane now not a helicopter that airplane will just keep flying
0: so a lot of people don't know and i didn't realize this until i was in the smaller planes is that there's pedals for planes mm-hmm. can you explain the what the, the the pedals do
1: yeah it's the rudders okay so can we pause for a minute yeah well, oh i was just gonna
0: i was just gonna say after you finish all right we'll be right back after this break all righty guys so we're back so mark if you want to pick up on what you're talking about
1: yeah so your question was that airplanes had pedals. Yes. So the airplanes, um, the the pedals basically work the rudder in the back, like a rudder, like a just like on a boat. And if you you step on the left pedal, it basically deflects the rudder to the left, and the airplane will yaw to the left. Mm-hmm. If you step to the right, it will yaw to the right, and that's basically turning the nose. Um, if in let's say you're in flat level flight. And I step on the right pedal. It's going to turn my nose to the right. It's not going to dip my wings. That is the yoke and the ailerons when you turn the yoke. So when you pull back on the mm-hmm. yoke, you have an elevator in the back. That makes the houses get bigger. or houses get smaller. Houses get bigger. Push forward. Yeah. You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's funny so, because they, I don't know if I remember this correctly. The guy was when we were flying to block Island would literally his hands wouldn't even be on the wheel and he'd just be moving with his feet. Yeah. I was like, that's kind of cool. I never got to sit next to the pilot, but I, I got to sit like just directly behind him. Right. And it's really cool. Like those small planes, like it's just like a few switches and then you're ready to go, you know? yeah. Yeah. But super cool. And yeah, I mean, I definitely got used to it and I liked it a lot more. So have you seen any UFOs while flying?
1: I don't think so. <laughs> you know, um, I've seen a lot of cool stuff. Yeah. Um, I don't believe I've ever seen a UFO though. No. You know. No. I know okay. That, I know the Navy is releasing, uh, um, yeah, documentation and whatnot, and actually coming out and going, yeah, you know, it's, they exist. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta believe they exist when you yeah. look at the. How big the universe is. There's got to be somebody else out there, yeah. right? I just thought of
0: that, like, literally 30 seconds ago, and I just thought it'd be a fun yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't, yeah, that's a People thing. People ask either. me, you have been shot
1: at? Not that I know of. You
0: know. <laughs> um, so what is the largest flying vehicle that you've flown?
1: Largest flying vehicle? Yes. I guess that would be the C-23 Sherpa.
0: So how long is that in feet? How big is that plane? Uh, oh, you don't... Uh,
1: off top of my head, uh, fifty maybe fifty feet. I can't remember the dimensions. Yeah, no, I mean, that's okay. Can, yeah, you it's can. It's the
0: wingspan is usually longer than like the actual. Yeah, wingspan.
1: Length. I want to say on it was seventy five feet.
0: Okay, I think. Interesting.
1: Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, a lot of fun to fly that airplane. That really, so much fun. like yeah. that
0: big of a. Pl- is it more fun to fly than the smaller stuff
1: or? Well, it. I I should say. Um, different kind. It's, it's like two di- two different vehicles. Like the yeah. C twelve, um, is a King Air two hundred um and the the c23 sherpa was Mm -hmm. a sd3 so at the time i I was i was flying in like between 2008 to 2012 ish i was flying both airplanes the c12 and the c23 and at the time i had a chevy 2500 truck but i also had a little mercedes c230 compressor and i would say like the c12 was like my c c230 compressor mercedes and the 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 c23 sherpa was the the chevy yeah. 2500 you know
0: were the compressors the supercharged yeah, yeah they were supercharged okay yeah. yeah a lot of fun oh uh we're gonna take one more break i'll be right back
1: where i've flown what yeah done?
0: so i apologize for that guys uh just something came up and i just need to take care of it really quick uh there shouldn't be any more interruptions hopefully unless unless Mark has has to take another emergency pee. <laughs> hey, I'm old. <laughs> All right. Um so now we're going to get into some of the deployments you've been on um, throughout your military career and uh, what was the first one? Let's start off with that that you went on.
1: Uh, first deployment was 2005-2006 um, to Iraq. Okay. Yep. Flying out of Balad Iraq with the C23 Sharpa. Uh
0: cool and and how many different deployments have you been on five five and there and i mean obviously i remember the most recent one was like like eight months
1: a couple years ago yeah yeah i just went to uh went to columbia
0: yeah okay and how how long was that one
1: uh it was actually only six months okay um which because of covid (laughs) that's right um, yeah yeah so i was in fort bragg north carolina getting ready to to head down to columbia columbia Mm -hmm. basically closed their borders um we went on title 10 orders and we ended up coming back to the state of rhode island for like a month and a half Mm -hmm. almost two almost two months and then went down to uh went down flew down to columbia after that and stood what was there from may of 2020 through october of 2020
0: so can you talk about that story that you're telling me before we started or is it yeah. Okay. You know, I can talk about it. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know if you want to mention that.
1: That was the uh, the first deployment. Um, kind of cool, you know. I, I've I've been I would I would definitely say I've been blessed to to be a pilot in the in the guard the way that I am and the the career that I've I've had has been awesome. It's been fun, you know. And uh, being a warrant officer is the best rank in the military, you know. Um, but uh, the 2005-2006 deployment, um, people may remember the name um, Mohammed al-Zarqawi. He was the leader of um, ISIS in Iraq, I guess, or Al-Qaeda in Iraq is what it was. And um, basically we were flying a team that was, they were going to be the ones to grab them. Um, they had, through some intel, they had gotten, um, and this is all you Know 15 20 years later, so it's all unclassified now. But they had gotten his um realtor, if you will. <laughs> they <laughs> they they got a guy who was providing him with safe houses, yeah. So they had interrogated him, they knew where he was going to be, um, or they they could find out when he was going to be at one of these houses, they could trap keep an eye on him. And the plan was to go in and grab him, and um me and my crew, or my crew and I, were going to be the, you know, we rotated every, we were on for, on two nights, off for one, on two, off for one. But this mission was kind of sensitive, so it was the team that was going to grab them, and it was us as an air crew. So at the time, um, basically these guys were flying, it was a Delta team, and these guys were, we helped them test out these new parachutes that they had never jumped before. So we flew. We most of our stuff was at night doing this, and then we had to go out during the day. Um, so we had to get up early that that day, if you will, because I was I was awake during the night, sleeping during the day. But we uh, we brought them out to a point in space, and it, it was it was all like, hey, just go here, go there, do this, do that. There was no like. They just gave us a like I said a point in space, and you're going to go here. They'll the jump master will give you your jump run, which is you fly the airplane a certain on a certain heading into the wind, and when they get to that space, they jump. And these guys are we're nine thousand feet. They basically flew the chutes like seven miles. It was kind of cool. Um, and then later on, we were supposed to go link up with uh, with um, an AC-130 so that he could shine a infrared light on a place and we were bringing the, the jump guy out with us so that he would know what he was looking at. He was looking at through, through some NVGs and um, the, uh, the general in charge at the time was Lieutenant General Stanley McChrystal. He was the the three-star general in charge of SOCOM, uh, special operations command in Iraq and Afghanistan at the time. And he was listening in on the net and you'll I, I crack on the Air Force quite often because you know we have the inter-service rivalry and whatnot. And they're they're all good people, but um, the sometimes the uh, their the rules they they do not bend whatsoever. Um, and it, sometimes you you have to you have to bend to get the mission done. You know you do it safely, and you but you have to you know mission first you know what i mean so anyway we had to later on that night we had to go meet them at a certain spot and the chunk of land that we were meeting them in was just on the north side of baghdad if you looked at our flight map at the time there was just this big black area like this was a no-fly zone and here we are circling i'm circling my c-23 at 5,000 feet right in this Mm -hmm. no-fly zone and the c-130 was was supposed to come over to us there was thunderstorms at the time and the, th- the thunderstorms are very different in, in Iraq than, or in that part of the world than they are here in the United States. You know, in the United States you get this, this vertical building and, you know, they can go to like 50,000 feet and you get a lot of lightning hitting the ground and striking all over the place and, and a lot of rain and stuff. I've flown for literally 100 miles from Balad up to Mosul and watched a thunderstorm out my right door out over towards Iran and like you can look and see underneath it you can see all the villages and whatnot the lights of the villages you can see the base of the clouds you see all the lightning that happens inside the clouds and then around like at 9000 feet it starts and then above it at like around 13 14000 feet the clouds stop and you're looking at clear sky above and it, all mm-hmm. the lightning is happening. It's almost like the beginning of the, like when you see a movie and you see that THX yeah. and the little ball and all the storm is happening inside the ball. It's kind of like that, mm-hmm. you know. So you never really get these cloud to ground lightning strikes or anything. So we're circling around in Taji there, just north of Baghdad, between Taji and Ramadi. Really bad spot at this time, but I'm circling around and there's there's a thunderstorm all around me and stuff, or it's above, and. The AC 130, the Spectre was like, oh, we can't get to where you're at, your location. We're eight miles west, and there's weather. And I'm like, yeah, but no, we're here. You know, you can come on over. It's the weather's great. You know, and they're like, no, no, we can't do. It. I'm like, all right, we'll fly over to you. So we flew over to them, and um, we linked up with the with the 130. We could see them. They were a thousand above us, and it was fine. They could have came over to us, but we went over to them. They shine their light. Our guy saw it. We were a thumbs up. We went back to, to uh, base, and General McChrystal had been listening in on the, the conversation going back and forth. And our handler that was a W-5 at the time, he comes over. He goes, after we shut down, we were letting the guys off. We shut down, and we hop out, and I'm talking. He goes, dude, He goes, that was hilarious. <laughs> He's like, General McChrystal was listening to that whole thing. <laughs> He's like, those, those Air Force guys, he was like so pissed. So that was just kind of funny, you know. Yeah, that's, but, um,
0: that's really cool. I mean, and I say very cool, really cool. Yeah, really uh, cool. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's that's interesting. Um, I mean, I never really talked to anybody about. I mean, other than hearing from you, stories from you about deployments and and things like that. But uh, I don't know if there's any other stories that you want to share from being
1: deployed. Um, yeah, you know that that same year, flying um, the weather. It's funny. So couple things about iraq so iraq has you you look at the united states right the united states has has fertile farmland it has beautiful snow-capped mountains it has deserts you have rivers you have river valleys and and like i say ocean there's a little bit of coastline you know we have coastline iraq is the only other country in the world that I've flown to, that really has the same diversity as the United States. Believe really? it or not, yeah, you have vast deserts, but you have lush farmland, you have mountains that separate you, them and, and Iran, beautiful snow-capped mountains, beautiful, huh. yeah, rivers, you're, you're at the, and we literally, our base was right on the edge of the Tigris River, Oh, I know that river. Yeah, yeah, well, just south and west, we would fly west across Lake Tartar and going out to Al-Assad, we would cross the Euphrates, the Tigris and the Euphrates. We were in, it's the cradle of civilization. Yeah. Old Roman ruins out there, like you'd fly along and see these old Roman bridges that were built from thousands of years ago, you know. That's awesome. Yeah, pretty neat, you know. But I will also say that the weather over there is some of the worst that I've ever flown in. Yeah, and like, um, y- you don't want to get caught in a thunderstorm over here. You don't. You don't want to get caught in a thunderstorm over there either. Like, the turbulence, the the outflow from the dust storms. Like, if you ever get caught in a dust storm, I had a, um, I was going into Mosul once, and Mosul was a you know the Tigris River went right up through Mosul. And you didn't want to fly along a river because you'd get shot at, you know, so we would make our approach from about 30 degrees to the east, we would come in and land when we landed in Mosul, the the, we would kind of cross the river, make this would would be descending down from like 5000 feet or so would be descending down would be crossing the river at just a couple hundred feet and kind of make this swoopy turn and boom, put it right on the ground. And we were right on the runway there. It was like we were turning at a hundred feet to come in and land. And um, we talked to uh, the the approach, the folks in the tower there at at and they would tell us the weather, they're like, yeah, winds are like in the runway there was three, three, three. So they're like, yeah, winds are like three zero zero at five knots, clear, da-da-da. So we're like, all right, cool. So we're coming in from the east and 30 degrees to the runway. And our radar, we would always have our radar going, because you never know, even though it's it's fairly dry there. And we're coming in, and all of a sudden this just big red spot on the radar, a thunderstorm basically. And this thing had built. And the problem with a thunderstorm when it when it when it what goes up must come down. When it builds, when it comes back down, that that shaft of air hitting the desert kicks out dust, mm-hmm. you know. So you get this outflow of dust. So we see that, and we're we're coming along. And and Mosul kind of sat down off of a off of a two hundred foot ravine or ledge, if you will. You know what I mean. So like a ridge it sat down alongside a ridge, and it was all high desert above that. So when we come in, I'm like, and I'm flying. The guy I'm flying with. Like we talk about National Guard guys, one weekend a month. His full-time job was an FAA inspector, so he worked for the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. He's a pilot for the he checks people for the FAA. So I'm an instructor on the C23, whatnot. I'm flying. I got my two flight engineers overlooking one of which, one of which is still in. As an ops guy, the other guy I fly the C-12 with now. He's since gone and become a warrant officer. He was enlisted at the time, young enlisted kid. He's gone, become a warrant officer, flies for the airlines, and he flies the C-12 now mm-hmm. with me, right? Great kid. Um, so <laughs> we're coming in with 30 degrees. Just boom, big red spot on the radar. Coming in, we're like, wow, just you know. So we do a wind check, and or tower calls us up and they said, hey, winds now are like two seven zero at 20 gusting 30 and we're like so they just shifted like 30 degrees and it's basically coming from that shaft basically that cell so as i come in like i said we would come in like 30 degrees we're descending to the runway making my turn i turn to the runway line up and you get that outflow comes down off of down that hill the dust Comes down the hill. I am lined up with the runway. I'm about 30 feet off the ground coming in. And all of a sudden, I am in a solid dust storm. Like, (laughs) I can't see anything. But I'm doing basically 100 knots, 110 knots coming down towards the runway. And I was 30 feet above. And I'm like, I threw, and I had thrown the ailerons in. We talked about the rudders before. And... You know, a lot of your listeners might be like, when they come in for a landing, mm. they're like, oh my God, I freaked out because the, the wing went down and I thought we were going to hit the ground. No, that's just called a crosswind landing. So those ailerons will turn the airplane, but if you just put the ailerons in, then the airplane's going to turn. Well, the runway's still in front of you, so you got to stuff some of that right pedal in there to keep the nose off. And basically, you, you come in and land on that upwind wheel. The wing being down. So um, I had lined myself up. I had the aileron in the rudder. It was the runway was still there. I'm coming down. There's no real go-around at this point. And there was like a space of like a second where the dust cleared for a minute, and the, I was just about touching down. The runway was I was li- still lined up. Runway was there. I touched down, poof, dust again, runway's gone. And I'm, like, holding the aileron, and you have to keep that aileron in as the, as the airplane slows down. So I yell to my co-pilot. I'm, like, hey, I need a hand holding the holding the rudders. And his hands are in his lap, and I kind of glance. As I'm flying the airplane, aileron into the wind, rudders, full rudder. And it was, like, the the C-23 was, like, holding a sheet of plywood in the wind walking out of Home Depot. It was just mm-hmm. a bear to fly in a crosswind. And I look over and Jay's like, he's like catatonic. I'm like, gone. He's like, like Ghostbusters. Ray's gone. Bye-bye. You know what I mean? So I'm like, great. So now I'm like, so I'm, I brace it with my knee, get it on the ground. And you have to pull the power levers back and snap the, there's a ground air lever. You have to snap that to get it back into reverse. And luckily, it's, Mosul's the shortest runway in Iraq, but it was still 9,000 feet long, which is 1,000 feet longer than Kwanzaa. It's a pretty long runway. So <laughs> Gemma, the kid, kid over my shoulder, Mike, Mike's like, that was awesome. I'm like, it ain't over yet, kid. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'm still doing 90 knots going down the runway. And Jay's just like, and so I get it, I get a slowed down and, and the dust kind of settles a little bit and I'm still on the runway, still mm-hmm. lined up and... And Jay just goes, "Boy, I'm glad you were flying," and I'm like, "Dude, really? Like, no help there." So was yeah. that
0: like, did you ever did it, did it ever cross your mind like, "Holy crap, I might mean, crash this plane?" No, no, no.
1: It's you know, I don't know. The runway was there. It's yeah, still gonna be there. Yeah, you know, and
0: that's crazy. It's
1: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um. Did you ever have like an experience where you were like, Holy crap, I might die flying a plane?
1: One. Yeah. And that was uh just a couple of years ago actually, flying um in the King Air and they you get what's called tailplane icing. The the back tail mm. uh ices up heavy and it's it's when you when an airplane stalls, which means the wing stalls, it's not, hey, my engine like Hey, I was driving and my engine stalled on my car. It's a, mm. it's a wing stall. It's an aerodynamic term. Um, when a wing stalls, you push forward on the yoke, you recover and fly out of it. Give it some, you know, give it some power and you fly out of it. Um, when a tailplane stalls, it is, um, it's a total opposite reaction, and you have to like kind of hold back, and it's it's really it's really hairy, and you can't you can't recover. Um, To get out of it, you had to, we had to climb, we had to continue climbing. So you're holding up, you can't really go down, down is more ice, up is clear air, but you're gaining ice as you're climbing. So you're climbing at like 200 feet a minute, through ice, gaining more ice, reducing your climb rate. And we finally climbed, we got into it, I want to say around 9,000 feet, and we didn't climb out of it until 19,000 feet. And uh, it took us – and usually, so when we're – normal day, clear day, I climb out. I'm flying at, let's say, 180 knots or 160 knots in the climb. I'm climbing out at 1,500 feet per minute, and I level off. As the airplane levels off, it accelerates, and I'll get to like 200 knots in all of 10 or 15 seconds. You know, um it's it just accelerates, you pull the props back and boom, it's like shifting into fourth gear, boom, mm. putting more pitch in. Um we climbed out, we were the minimum in icing is 140 knots indicated. We were at 140 knots the whole time because that gives you the, your airplane the best deck angle to not accumulate ice on the base. So minimum 140 knots, so we're climbing, we're climbing really slow, really slow. We finally get out, we level off at 140 knots, and at 20, by the time we actually get out, because there was another cloud deck coming, we we climbed out at 19,000, we were supposed to climb to 20, we get to 20, there's another cloud deck in front of us, we continue our climb to 22,000 feet, level off at 22,000, we're in the clear at 140 knots, it took us i want to say about eighty to ninety miles before we had accelerated the ice was was shedding off like it basically the friction melts the ice, if mm-hmm. you will, as you're going along, and it was about eighty miles before we could pull the props back and do our cruise check, which was. I want to say it was about 20 minutes or so by the time we accelerated up to that speed. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, pucker factor 10, <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah, a little yeah. crazy.
0: Well, that's something that you don't really think about. I mean, sometimes you see it like on a movie or something, but you, yeah, a lot of times you don't think like planes can ice up. Because, yeah. I mean, how cold is it usually, you know, when you get 19,000 feet up? Does it does the temperature drop a lot?
1: Oh, yeah. You, yeah. You, about 2,000 feet per 2 degrees per 1,000 feet Okay, is a standard adiabatic lapse rate, it's called. Okay. So, you you know, a a standard day is 15 degrees Celsius at at sea level, 15 degrees Celsius. And Mm -hmm. so if it's, let's say, like today, it's, you know, 10 degrees out there, right? Fahrenheit. 10 Fahrenheit, which... So... Yeah. You double it, subtract 10% and add 32, right? Or if you're doing doing Celsius, it was minus 22 Celsius, Mm. I think, today, right? Yeah. So two degrees per 1,000 feet, if I go 20,000 feet, that's 40 more degrees, so it'll be minus 62 Mm -hmm. Celsius. And we do, everything's in Celsius. Yeah,
0: Celsius makes so much, metric system, Celsius, I, I think it makes so much more sense. It's like, I don't know, going off on a tangent here, but it's like zero degrees freezes water, 100 boils. Easy to remember. It's not 32 and 212, you know, in Fahrenheit. And then it's like meters, you know, kilometers, centimeters, meters, all very easy. It's all by 10. Right. You know, easy to remember.
1: You know what's Uh, peculiar about us as the United States and and we use the standard, we don't use the metric system. hmm. We're the only ones who've been to the moon yeah okay yeah whatever yeah metric system yeah we'll comply with our ammunition 5.56 millimeter nine millimeter yeah there you go we'll talk metric
0: yeah but um yeah so i i i think that's about it um been a great conversation i really appreciate you coming out and i asked this last question uh to all my guests yeah all my guests and what sort of advice would you want to leave the business owner? It could be about military, could be about your bit the business, could be about life, anything you want.
1: What sort of advice would I give your listeners? Yeah. Is that saying? Just, yeah. Never pass up ice cream or hot chocolate.
0: Okay. <laughs> Perfect. So, can be interpreted however you well, want.
1: I've I've always told my kids that mm. since they were little. Never pass up ice cream or hot chocolate because life is too short Mm -hmm. and you never know when you're going to, when you won't be here anymore, when you won't be able to have that. And that really translates to always like, always live, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Like take chances. Don't, don't just, you know go through life, not expanding and, and trying and learning, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? Flying, you have to, you're, you're constantly learning. You should constantly challenge yourself, um, to continue to learn all the time, you know? Um, but yeah, life is, life is way too short to, to squander the pink Floyd's time, you know? um, You are young and life is long, you know, but then one day you find 10 years have got behind you. No one told you when to run. You missed the starting gun. So you got to, you do, you have to, you have to move and you have to live life. You have to take chances. You got to, and along the way, you know, never pass up ice cream or hot chocolate. That's it. Incredible.
0: That's awesome. So, thank you for that advice. There you you go. Yeah, that's awesome. So, but thanks again for coming on. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, it was fun. Yeah, I mean, yeah, awesome. I actually really, I I really look forward to this because I. You didn't ask me
1: like where I've flown or anything like that, though. I mean, like I've flown as far south as Colombia and all the way across the Atlantic through Europe, all the way into Iraq. Yeah. Well,
0: I Um, mean, I thought we, I thought we, I mean, because you said you've been to Colombia. Yeah, recently yeah. Yeah. you said you've been to whoever, i don't know i'm just messing with yeah. you yeah <laughs> but all right yeah, I, it was fun it was, it good was, time. was yeah. awesome so guys uh make sure to check out knowledge is power underscore ri on instagram make sure to leave the podcast a rating wherever you listen spotify just made uh it available to review podcasts uh if you feel like i can give it a five-star review that would be awesome uh but you don't have to it's free country uh sometimes Um, but, um, yeah, thanks guys. And I will catch you in the next one.